Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. I'm Evan Novi williams And I'm Michael Barr, and this is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast, where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. Today, we begin with the Mets, and we're talking about the story that you broke, Scott. Yeah, if you remember about six years ago when the Mets ownership was in a little bit of financial stress over the Bernie Madoff scheme, right. they didn't know they were in talks with Irving Picard about clawback money. Uh, they put out a request for investors in the team. They sold 12 $20 million stakes. In essence, it acted as a loan. You got a 4% stake in the team for the $20 million, a guaranteed compounded 3% annual return. After six years, you had to decide, do I want to keep this stake or do I want to sell it? And three or four of those folks or people in those ownership groups have put up their hands and notified the Mets ownership of their intent to sell. It's turned out to be, a, a, a fantastic investment. The, the team value has essentially quadrupled, if you, if you trust Forbes. Your $20 million stake is now worth $80 million. But, as you said, there are some people out there that are uh, willing to uh, cash out now. Obviously, valuations are up. They did not have to participate in cash calls in the past. We're now at that point where if they kept the stakes, they would. The Mets have an option to buy these back. Uh, and, and as you reported, sounds like that's not what's, what's going to happen. the current appraised value of the team and the Mets, from what I understand, will not exercise that option because if they want them, and they don't need them, you get no voting rights, you get no control. At the time, you know how they induced people to buy these shares, Bar? You know what they got? Which is? They got to hang out with Mr. Met. Well, they, there you they, go. They got business cards that said owner. They got to play on the field when the team was away for one day. You know, those kind of little perks for your $20 million investment. So the bottom line is, if we all get to our piggy banks, we can own a share of the Mets. Yeah, well, if we get if your piggy, piggy bank, bank is involved, much bigger than my piggy bank. <laughs> yeah, sure. We're counting on bar to bring the, uh, the big substantial chunk here. Realistically, how vibrant a market are we expecting for these things? As you say, there's, there, there's not many perks. You're not... No voting rights. This is literally just a, a chance yeah, to the, say that you own a piece the of the problem, team. problem, yeah, that's what it is. The problem is these things used to be very popular and people would buy 1%, 2%, whatever. The problem nowadays is that the valuations have gotten so high that absent any sort of operational say or board seat or representation, it's a whole lot of money for nothing that amounts to pretty much season tickets. Let's go on from a story that Scott broke to a story that Eben has broke about tennis fixing. Yeah, the if you're a tennis fan out there, uh, the two-year report into match fixing, probably no surprises in there, but there is uh, rampant uh, match fixing and corruption at the lowest levels of tennis. Uh, this is a group of lawyers that are kind of trying to diagnose the problem, and the problem they've come to, and this is actually relevant for, for, for U.S. sports as well, is that data deals that, that companies like Sport Radar sign, in which they take official data streams and then sell them to bookmakers so they can offer lines on them. This group of lawyers is arguing that those data deals facilitated this rampant spread of corruption. See, and this is the problem that people are worried about now with gambling looking to be legal if the Supreme Court decides to do what it's going to do. This is what people are worried about. The bets are happening anyway. The argument is that if you legalize, if you're following, if you're looking at betting patterns, at least you, you can know it's happening. This was a two-year investigation to say that two 16-year-olds that are playing in Kuala Lumpur are subject to payoffs because 
massive amounts of money are being bet. If nobody bet on it, who would pay either one of them to throw a match? doesn't make any sense. Or even to throw a set. That's how these games are bet on. And the reason this matters in the U.S. is that, as we've talked about on this show many times, we're waiting on the Supreme Court to make a ruling on whether states like New Jersey should be allowed to offer legal sports betting. Leagues like the NBA and, and Major League Baseball have been going state to state arguing for things like official data to be required by bookmakers. They're arguing for the right to restrict betting on things like minor league baseball. And, and, and as Scott said, these minor league levels of tennis are way below even the, 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 the smallest levels of professional baseball here in the U.S. But there's no question that when you have a sport in which people are not paid very much, where your referees and umpires are not paid very much, where there's no real official oversight, those are the groups that are most likely to be corrupted by betting syndicates. Well, wouldn't that set off alarm bells? I mean, there's one thing if you're talking about a big-time match, but like you said, when you're talking about minor league tennis and all of a sudden you see big money moving on a match, doesn't that set off an alarm bell? Exactly, and that's kind of what that's what a lot of these companies are doing. They're monitoring these betting lines. They're seeing if suddenly betting on you know this woman to, to lose the third service game or the second set if that suddenly spikes Would that be uh, they have a they have a good idea that there is uh there is some corruption going on um and yeah the higher up you get the more liquidity in the market the harder those things are to uh to detect we learned this years ago like i didn't know this and i mean you learn that radar sport radar was willing to pay big money for these rights because there are matches spread out all over the world and these betting companies they need live matches on their platforms to keep people playing. Like, oh, it's a 3 a.m., but there's a match being played you know, in this part of the world. Hey, all right, I'll bet on this. That's why it was so valuable, and they paid, what was it? $70 million, $70 million over five years. Wow. For ITF, and let's not forget who the investors are in a company like SportRadar. Some names you might know. Mark Cuban, Michael Jordan, Ted Leonsis. So... Uh, they are there already. These are big-time U.S. owners. This is an issue. And as we get closer and closer to what framework's going to look like in the U.S., uh, they're going to be a major player here as well. Let's talk about the NFL. First of all, I want to start with the ratings, first of all, for the NFL draft. Now, according to ESPN, the ratings were $5 million on Thursday for round one. Then it dropped down uh, Friday night to 1.6 million then rebounded to 2.2 million for day three in other words you're going to see the draft and it's going to be here to stay i think those numbers are just for espn right that's just for yeah, ESPN. So if this you, is a year where we're if you combine all CBS, the other NBC, networks pbs bloomberg yeah, everybody yeah. showed the draft this year i think it was t- almost 12 million yeah. Yeah. on thursday night i mean it, that outdrew every nba playoff game every I'm nhl playoff game probably cumulative far, for all the sports far that night. be it from me to criticize sports fans that are so engaged in the content that they keep us employed but i'm going to argue that i'm smarter than all of them <laughs> because you know how i take in my draft bar i don't and then maybe three hours later, I can log on to my telephone sitting on my couch end of the night and say, okay, oh, look at that. Baker Mayfield went number one. Okay, got it. Hey, Saquon Barkley went to the Giants. That's pretty cool. Oh, look at this. The Jets got a quarterback. Very good. I got what I need. Goodbye. See, usually I'm asleep around that time, but I woke up. It's too much Ovaltine. It was. man. I had to see the draft. 
and oh. I'm hooked. It's, oh. a, it's a unique TV property, oh. right? It, it, it attracts college football fans because they want to see where guys that went to their school are going. It attracts NFL-only fans because they want to see what their team is drafting. And it attracts, obviously, the people that are, that are both. Like, but it is a nice reminder that the, the NFL watch is parties. dominant. Like, that, yeah, the, I mean, the, the Jets, the Giants, but, like, I mean, they had watch parties, and like many thousands of people showed up yeah. at the stadium to watch this stuff. Speaking of watching TV, well, I shouldn't say TV. There is a deal now for Thursday Night Football with Amazon. Staying with Amazon. Yeah. Last time, it was about $50 million for the one year. Of course, you know how the NFL does business. They never go down. So this is a two-year deal, about $130 million. So can you do the math real fast? 52. Increase. 65. A lot of money. 65 more than 50. That's the way the NFL does Plus business. Plus serious coin. Yeah, but what I'm interested in here is that it also includes the Amazon channel Twitch. And the future of young people watching this is going to be a different broadcast. It's not going to be like what you're comfortable seeing, you know, you on your big screen TV. This is about graphics and, and, and information. This is going to be aimed at experimenting. How do we present football to the audience of the future? Were we surprised that Amazon re-upped? I mean, the, the NFL has made it clear that the, hey, this is just an experiment. You know, none of these games are exclusive. You can still watch these on TV. They are playing around with different digital partners. They've done games with Yahoo!, they did games with Twitch, or games with Twitter, sorry. Uh, last year, they did these games with Amazon. Yeah. Seemed like it might make sense that, who knows, this could be Facebook, this could be YouTube, this could be someone else. Yeah, I was, surpri- I was surprised they it went wasn't back to Amazon. YouTube. I re- I, this time, I was surprised because it's experimentation, and they've done the Twitter, they've done Amazon. I was a little surprised that they didn't see how to utilize YouTube, because you're, then you're cutting up all kinds of content highlights and how people are really watching what they're watching. I was a little surprised there, but a little surprised. The fact that Amazon is still trying to figure out new ways to separate people from their cash, not surprised at all. And utilizing sports to do it makes perfect sense. And this gets them, this is a two-year deal, as you said, so this this will expire before all the TV deals do. We're getting do. close. Yeah. So there, there will be another round of this kind of short-term digital intermixing I, before I we think, get to the mega round yeah, where who knows what's going to happen. I don't think I'm going to be retired standpoint. by 2021-22, but I got to say, <laughs> uh, for the sports media folks out there, it's going to be one of the 24-7 monitoring of who who's getting these rights and how are they sharing them, how are they getting cut up. I'm tired just thinking about it. Oh, calm down. I'm, play, I'm playing the role <laughs> of old man bar today. <laughs> this is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. I'm Michael Barr, along with Scott Soschnick and Eben Novi williams We are here each and every Monday and Friday exploring the world of money and sports. Join us again at the end of the week when we speak with the biggest and brightest in the sports business world. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world and online as an Apple podcast on iTunes.